from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? So if you're new to our show, we exist to help bridge the political divide in our society and strive to listen to issues from all perspectives with respect, reasonableness, and the knowledge that most solutions can best be crafted from the middle. Now, of course, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, international lecturer, and our human source book of historical expertise, <laughs> Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Thank you for having me back. And our special guest here in Kurt Coe's Malibu studios, Macon Del Rahim. He's currently serving as Assistant Attorney General for the United States Department of Justice, Antitrust Division. He was confirmed by the Senate in September of 2017, and he's got quite a personal history, starting with moving to the U.S. from Iran when he was 10. He earned his law degree from George Washington University Law School in 1995, and if that wasn't good enough, he went on to earn a Master's of Science in Biotechnology from none other than Johns Hopkins. His law accolades are too many to mention. He was Deputy Assistant Attorney General during the George Bush presidency. And after that, he came back to L.A., joined Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, and focused his time on antitrust and intellectual property matters for such auspicious clients as Google, Apple, Qualcomm, and Anthem. Macon, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for inviting me, and it's a great honor to be here with Professor Larson and with you in this format. Uh, Macon, tell us a bit about your department's current charter. We're two agencies, the, the Antitrust Division, and there's also the Federal Trade Commission. We both share the civil enforcement of the antitrust laws. At the Justice Department, we exclusively do all the criminal enforcement. And our role and my job isn't to protect a competitor. It is to protect competition and the free markets. Antitrust is not a club to punish a company who has become a successful competitor. And so my job is really to make sure that the markets are fair. The T-Mobile takeover of Sprint, a merger I believe that you were in favor of. With the remedies that I put in place. Uh, their competitors like Verizon and AT&T uh, are huge. Basically, putting Sprint and T-Mobile together gives them some ability to compete in the marketplace. Can you give us an idea who was against those mergers? How did they fight against the merger, and how did it turn out? The deal is still pending uh, before Judge Marrero in, in Manhattan in Southern District of New York. Uh, I believe, uh, ultimately, it was 13 states' attorneys generals who brought a suit to block that merger. So we're, everybody's, I think, waiting to see what happens there. What was their influence? Why were they trying to block it? Well, so they did not agree with the remedy and the resolution that I put in place. Which was? It's complicated, but let me mention a few of them. So there was a lot of pro-competitive aspects of this merger, such as T-Mobile will now have the capacity to compete with AT&T and Verizon on quality and extra capacity to be able to sell. They're at capacity now with the spectrum that they have. So... Uh, Sprint and T-Mobile were competing, but they were kind of in a different league than AT&T and Verizon uh, as far as quality goes. So there was positive aspects. There was also some anti-competitive harm from that merger, which we identified. And in court, I filed. I said I would block this transaction had it not been remedied. And so and we engaged those? in the negotiations. So the FCC had a set of remedies. So for three years, they can't, you know, charge higher prices. And they had some build-out requirements. 
And then on top of that, um, what what we did was we required uh, a number of provisions, a sale of a number of assets to a third party, which happened to be Dish. And why did we pick Dish? Dish Networks. You actually picked Dish. Well, here's why. Dish was the only company that had Spectrum, this rare finite resource that could be used for 5G networks. Sprint was sitting on 100 megahertz of 2.5 Spectrum, also valuable, undeveloped. That's where T-Mobile was going to invest about $40 billion to build this new network. We would have four real high-quality competitors if this all goes through. Otherwise, you have the two incumbents, AT&T and Verizon. T-Mobile would continue to linger. Maybe they'll buy the assets, like the Spectrum from Sprint. But maybe AT&T will buy that Spectrum to build out more network, but continue to entrench their market power. Or Verizon, you know, depends on what that market is. I saw this opportunity where you could save the pro-competitive benefits of this transaction, totally remove the harm that would, you know, that would come from one less competitor, and now you have a different quality of a competitor. So it's a complex resolution. Network. So I have to ask you, Mike, do you dive this deep into developing your own knowledge of an industry every time you guys enter into a case like this? Uh, yes. Rather impressive. You're talking like a guy who has been in the cellular business for for 25 years. You have to know this. Now, I don't know as much as their chief engineers or as much as some of our staff do, but to make the right policy calls and the decisions, you know, I I have to protect the trust of the public. I have to protect the competition. I take that very seriously. Uh, my days run 17, 18 hours. It is important to get up to, but that's also why I have so many smart people and so many dedicated people. How do you do it? Do you have people who brief you on these these matters? Yes. We have, you know, 50 PhD economists that are experts in various different markets just inside of the antitrust division. Um, I engage with them. The parties certainly come in, and they give you their pitch. Clearly, money is a driving force in this whole discussion. When huge companies can afford the most influential lobbyists and those mergers result in higher prices, lousier services for the consumer, uh, I have to use AT&T as an example of that. And they have this kind of undue influence with their lobbyists, their power, and the power of throwing expensive lawsuits in the way of potential competitors. The system seems to be ineffective. I've lived through that experience. I brought a lawsuit against AT&T, and the judge disagreed with us. It wasn't so much their lobbying that affected that. Now, you know, lobbying is a part of general life in the United States because it's protected under the First Amendment, the right to petition your government. But it doesn't, and it shouldn't, influence uh, the decision of the antitrust enforcer. I can tell you there, I mean, there's certainly 112 registered lobbyists for AT&T. 112. 112. And I don't know how many of those actually worked on the merger. Let's just say a dozen. That didn't influence my decision to bring a case, obviously. Did it influence the outcome of the case? No. It influenced the public relations campaign. Uh, It certainly influenced, I think, a number of states' attorneys generals, none of whom joined our case. I have publicly disclosed that one state attorney general had demanded, and in writing, we write in there, as a condition of them joining our suit, 
They would want in writing that no assets would ever be sold to Rupert Murdoch. I just think that's just... That's just ridiculous. That would probably violate 12 constitutional amendments, but at least the first one, I think, if I had agreed to that, that's just bad government policy. That shouldn't happen. In our system, we have to go to a judge to prove our case and bear the burden. And that's a good thing. There has to be constant oversight to make sure that antitrust does its job. Now, I own a theater chain. Okay, now you have the big bad studio that calls me up and says, we've got the next Avengers Endgame coming out. It's going to be a $3 billion box office hit. But in order to take Avengers Endgame, you have to take the following crappy titles that nobody's going to watch. And I've got a tough enough time right now as a theater owner dealing with the fact that people are going to theaters less, although revenues are up, and there's a million other entertainment sources out there, so I'm struggling as a theater owner. If you deregulate, you know that the big monoliths are going to require that I show their crap in theater five and six in order to show their good stuff in one, two, and three. You know that's going to happen. So, Megan, I've got to ask you, do we want to deregulate and take away the... Consent decrees? Consent decrees. Or do we want to work on them, adjust them, and make some minor changes so that we don't find ourselves letting too much water in the boat? I filed in the Southern District in New York to terminate those because those restrictions in those consent decrees are no longer relevant. I do not have just Packaging the power. Packaging films in such a way is, not, is no longer uh, an issue? Or? No, because, well, for a number of reasons. So the market on all sides of this uh, distribution chain has completely changed. You now have basically four companies that control 80% of the screens in this country. You used to until two, not that long ago, 10 years ago, when you put a film in a theater, it came on the actual film. Somebody had to come in there and put it into the reel. Yeah, now, no now they're, to... they're basically stream in a movie. Right. They they uh, they can they can do they it can through fiber. It five minutes before the the and, movie starts. And you have Amazon and Netflix and everybody else. The market has completely changed. The consumer, those who actually still watch movies, can watch it on multiple distribution channels. But to what extent, Macon, is is your division's job to also protect the theater owner? None. My my job is to protect uh, competition. Not a competitor, ultimately the consumer, Consumer. but the competition. And that's a a small distinction, but ultimately the consumer wins when competition is protected. And not necessarily because it's a cheaper price, it's cheaper price, but there's also the quality There is also innovation and R&D. All of these we want to keep the incentive for. So you now have Amazon Studios, Apple, Netflix. They're producing movies that are just as good of a quality with just the same type of directors. They're paying for them. That's called competition. And you have many choices. So if you're a theater owner... And you are worried about, uh, you know, not being able to show well, if one. if a studio buys the theater down the block and they don't give me the right to show the Marvel movie, then I'm going out of business. Uh, maybe, except for Marvel is not the only movie out on the market. Well, the I, output is just huge. But the big so movies now you can are go, the big movies and they come with a whole lot of power. They do. 
but there's a difference in the relative powers that they have. And if you think about it, now Amazon and Netflix and all these other people can have all these distribution networks. Well, why shouldn't Fox be able to have their distribution Look, networks? A, and then there's also you know, a dozen business models that Absolutely. could happen that, that is prevented by these consent decrees. Who would have thought that the market would support not only support, but a company would thrive where you have a whole season of TV shows dumped in one day on a $7.95 a month subscription plan. And the result is, sure, there are winners and losers, but that's how the free market works with winners and losers. All antitrust cares about is that the consumer wins, not whether one of the competitors wins. That's a great place for us to take a break. And we'll be right back. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the companies whose actions, I think, affect the consumer. But it prevents companies from getting into the business. And that that hurts me at the end of the day, too. We'll be right back. It will be okay. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter. And I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So what you gonna do about it? One of the benefits to my position on this show is that I get to change horses. So for the next segment, I'm only going to be interested in the consumer's point of view. Uh, Got to bring up Amazon, Google, Facebook, the like. First of all, do you protect the consumer's right to privacy? Our job is to protect competition for the benefit of the consumer. We are not the privacy regulator. Privacy could be an element of quality, meaning that if you're one company that has inordinate amount of market share and are keeping other competitors from coming in, and the consumer wants a product that is much more privacy sensitive, but the anti-competitive conduct of you as the monopolist is keeping that second company from entering the market, that's something we would care about. But it's not because they didn't ask you permission for using you know, your data or information or abused it somehow. Of course, data and the network effects that ownership of data could provide to a company could have competition concerns. But we don't force you, if you've collected data through proper means, to share it with your competitor. I'm sorry, we don't force you we to do share We do not force it. you to share that data. So there's a lot of product improvements that could come with the collection of data that could be uh, a, a product improvement. You could do that. But you can't use your data to prevent competitors from entering in. But we don't view just a collection of data in and of itself as a violation of the antitrust laws. There's a lot of pro-competitive uses of data. I can sell you more products that you might find relevant. I could know about it. Now, some of this stuff could get really creepy real fast. Yeah, when you have a conversation with a buddy and, I don't know, series listening or something. Of and course. All of a sudden, the next day, you get a whole bunch of ads in front of you for a product that you only talked about. That's a really creepy thing. And there might be an asymmetry of information at the consumer. They, they might not know Uh, what is being done with the information that's being collected from them. They may have agreed by just pressing an accept button on a favorite app that they're using 
that the amount of information that's collected is incredible. Now, once upon a time, there was a a no-call list. Now, there really is no centralized place where a consumer could go and say, I don't want my information collected by any of these guys. Why isn't there a place to go that allows me to say, I want to be private? So on the phones, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, just recently announced uh, some policies in partnership with the cell phone companies to prevent the spam and the telemarketers from coming in. In fact, I've noticed it recently. All of a sudden, you know, I used to get, I don't know, a dozen phone calls that look like they're legitimate. They start with the same prefix as, you know, yeah, the you phone you recognize. You think it is, but it's not. There are robocalls coming in from somebody trying to sell you the next health insurance or warranty on a car. And uh, they now, what they're showing up is potential spam. But I'm not just talking about the idea of calling you when you don't want to call. I'm, I'm saying that if there was the concept once upon a time of a no-call list in a centralized form, was that a government entity that was doing that? That was. There was a do-not-call list that the Federal Trade Commission, and I believe with the FCC together, may have put that together. But it, but it required legislation. You're right. Yes. That was congressional legislation. Congress got together and passed a law, but I don't really view that as antitrust issue. I view that as a privacy issue. It's like the Consumer Protection Agency. That protected the consumer, but then it can be weakened by by other interests coming in and weakening how it operates. If what we're trying to do is protect the consumer, we need an organization where I could decide to register that would send a notice to all players that I don't want to be tracked. I don't want to be have my privacy taken from me in order to participate in you know consumer behavior. You know, I think that's a good point. And again, it's an important policy, a public policy issue that is on the top of a number of legislators and, and you know, and, and policy apparatus uh, leaders, uh, as well as some interest groups. But there's different privacy. There's privacy from the government that gets into the Fourth Amendment and the police powers and all of that. Then there's the privacy from just commercial companies. And look, they say, you don't have to use that app. You don't have to use that phone. But we're getting to a place where some of these are becoming almost necessities. It would be hard to operate today without a smartphone of some sort. Yes. And yet it follows you exactly where you are. Even if you turn it off, it knows where you are. Really? And so, absolutely. Yes, even if you turn it off, it knows where you are. If you leave it at home, it doesn't know where you are. But if you take it with you, it knows where you are, even if it's turned off. And so it knows you when know you're that. breathing. It knows when you get up at night. It knows if you're in a car. It knows when you're walking. It's got about some of these phones. Why? Because that data who, who is going to back to a company that has this information about you. And they want that information because they can market that information and it has value. A minute ago, you guys said that the goal was to protect the consumer. So what I want is an organization that allows me to have that choice. Not you. Now, that could be a law that passed be because of... Make that right, but I still have to request it. It still has to be my decision. Because no, no. maybe I like what it does for my sure. life to be but, followed. But, but there but, need to, right now, there is no law, and I think that's what we're both saying. There is no law that does it. The antitrust law doesn't do that in particular. No. You would need to pass a new law that would say that, and then you'd have to 
develop a regimen either with regulations or with legal cases that you could bring. You could do it either way. The Europeans have, to an extent, passed it. Now, you've got to realize, though, if you pass that law, it would regulate American companies, but it probably wouldn't regulate China. And China would probably still know when you were breathing and where you were. And also, you know, look, those laws, those apps... That really, that did not sit well with me, Ed. (laughs) That's an interesting... Have you ever used TikTok? (laughs) Yeah, well... I mean, the law, all it could say is you must get the consent from the consumer. And this is, okay, next time you're on favorite app, a little pop-up window comes up, says, if you want to continue on, you must press OK. And you accept by pressing OK all of these rules. Uh, So I'd like to bring up a kind of a, a distant subject for a second. I'm, I, I like single malts, bourbons. Um, I like to experiment in nice restaurants and bars and, and learn new things. But do you know how hard it is for a small producer of a spirit to get into restaurants when you have the big players telling restaurants and bars, no, 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 you're not giving up your shelf space to some new guy. So to, to what extent do you look at protecting my interest of wanting variety price competition, new product, and protect the reality that the big guys are owning the shelf space because of their power. Uh, look, we of course we care. Ultimately, it is the choice. We want to ensure that you, as the consumer, will have the choices that you want. Uh, but we also look at you know the economic factors in play. We look at the supply and the demand. None of us have necessarily the right to have anything we want in the local supermarket that's privately owned. They make their decisions. We want to ensure that there's enough outlets, enough distribution channels. What's great about technology is that if you don't find something at the local Ralph's or Safeways, you can now just go to your phone, order it on, you know, a half a dozen different outlets, and some of them with free delivery, you'll have it by tomorrow. And maybe some of them you'll even have it by the evening and you'll cut out some more of the folks in the middle. And so the technology has solved some of these issues. Maybe I didn't present the, the, the problem clearly enough. Uh, there's a guy in Malibu that has a new champagne called Mod. Mm. Do you think that Moet Hennessy is going to allow that to show up anywhere where they have such power over the shelf space for champagnes in restaurants and bars? I don't know if I'm they here do to tell enough, you they won't. If the quality is good. The quality is excellent. And they do enough, the marketing, so the consumer awareness will be there, and therefore the demand, I think it becomes difficult. Now, if Hennessy comes in and puts restrictive covenants saying that as a condition of offering my product, you cannot offer any of my competitors, that's something antitrust law will address. But if the business owner on his own makes a decision, look, nobody has ever heard of mod. There's not going to be the consumer demand. I'm not going to waste the shelf space. I could sell five more Hennessy products because in addition to that, they're also going to bring in all these other promotions that they do. That's a decision that business owner will make. But, but of if course, they we know that out, big, big companies do flex their muscle often and prevent new competitors from coming in that take bits of their market. You know, all of us who went to business school, we all had to learn a case study that we called the spaghetti sauce wars. 
right? So we remember the days where now ragu did it differently back <laughs> then. They decided to lower the price of their spaghetti sauce because of their power beneath the price that it cost to make it. For years, they made the price so low that it put all the other spaghetti sauces out of business, and they got another seven years of basically exclusivity. Their power allowed them to do that. Is that something that the trust department thinks is cool? Well, it depends on the facts, on the product. You know, I think, you know, nowadays you can order, again, that over the Internet, the spaghetti sauce. What we would look at is are you pricing your product below market? And there's a test for this called predatory pricing in order to drive out competition. But now the consumer is winning as long as you're doing that because they're getting a smaller, a lower price for a better quality or at least as good of a quality product. Or we can only buy a crappy product because nobody turns around and buys the good stuff because there's such a massive price difference. If that higher quality is not worth a higher price, then that's the market speaking. But if the consumer's preference is the cheaper one, now here's where the antitrust laws would step in. If they're dumb enough to sell below their cost for a long period of time, they're just going to go out of business. If they then can raise the price because others cannot enter, and then they erect barriers that keep somebody else from giving them price competition, well, that could be a situation where an antitrust a violation would occur because you would meet what's you know called the predatory pricing test. So I can't help but take the opportunity while you're here. The reason why this program exists is because our society is way too polarized, and we're hoping we can bring people together and have them listen to each other with respect and solve issues, you know, have family members get back together and friends <laughs> be able to dine together again. And, I, I can't help but wonder what it's like for you in the current environment, and I'm wondering how much you can share with us about your experiences in Washington. There's no question we're living in a time where people are divided, and, and perhaps technology has some uh, reasons for that because we are getting our information and news through certain sources, and we are fed an echo chamber of information that we want to hear. People have lost their ability uh, to be objective about some of these issues. And we everybody looks at each other as if you are wearing, you know, a red shirt or a blue shirt. But the fact that the intolerance has grown for different ideologies is a troubling yeah. development in our society because... But, you know, lots of people blame your boss. Uh, and I think probably inappropriately blame him because I think there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion um, that... Uh, goes on about some of these issues. And I've seen it, you know, the fact that there are roadblocks thrown to just the proper functioning of the government, the way our forefathers wanted. People also make a difference. And so you, as a historian, I'd say that. So you look back and you take, for example, George Washington. George Washington chose to have a cabinet where he brought in Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. He was trying to create a big tent. It depends on the personality. So if the electorate chooses an authoritarian-minded leader or a hyper-partisan sort of leader, you're going to get one sort of approach. But look, people come to a lot of these jobs with a great level of passion, dedication, and sacrifice in order to improve the system. 
Well, Mike and Del Rahim, I speaking about commending, half our audience would approach this program listening to you with incredibly critical minds. And the other half would, would potentially adopt everything you have to say and be saying, yeah. Um, the reality here that is obvious to us here at this table, spending this time with you, is that you personally put in the kind of energy, intellectual power, education, and time that we are very grateful for. And it doesn't matter what your party affiliations are, and it doesn't matter whether or not uh, we agree with everything you have to say, but what we are is very impressed with you, what you've chosen to do to try to help our society. And please, do something about the cell phones, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. Again, it's a privilege to serve, and uh, I should also state that all of my colleagues across the government and in both parties throughout, we may disagree on, a, on the margins of some policy, but across the country, you know, you look at the SEC chairman, the FCC chairman, the FTC chairman, uh, the CFTC, some of these are some of the most brilliant people with incredible character um, that are sacrificing and serving each day. And I think most of your listeners uh, should know the quality. And I thank you for allowing me this opportunity to share some of my experiences and my thoughts with you. Hopefully it'll help improve the dialogue. Well, thank you. I hope you'll come back at some point. I, I know I know we kept you too long. And Ed Larson, always a pleasure. You certainly bring a, a knowledge and a sensibility to these discussions that I really appreciate. Have a wonderful day, everybody. And thank you for meeting us in the middle. Thanks for coming. I'm Bill Curtis. Come back again. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.